right, guys, welcome back to the Jay Martin Show. I'm Jay Martin, and I'm joined right now by Lawson Steele, and we're going to talk about the carbon market. Lawson, I'm very excited to have this conversation. How are you doing? Yeah, good, thanks. Yeah, looking forward to it too. Okay, so as I said, we have a challenge in front of us because uh, I would say my audience is hyper-skeptical about the carbon market, and I'm interested in it because uh, two of the smartest capital allocators that I stay close to have both put a lot of skin in the game in the carbon sector. Um, I followed their lead, invested in a couple of companies, uh, but the skepticism of my audience is very strong. Now, we're not gonna be talking about the voluntary carbon market today, which is what I've covered in the past on this show. You're bringing a new angle to this conversation and that's the EU carbon market. So could we start there, Lawson, and you can just maybe differentiate for my audience and myself what is the difference about what we're going to talk about today versus the voluntary carbon market that we've heard promoted thus far? Yeah, look, I mean, I think uh, you're, I completely agree with the skepticism um, <clears throat> because typically what people talk about when they're talking about carbon uh, is the voluntary market. So, you know, planting a forest or, or, or biodiversity, you know, <clears throat> projects, that kind of thing. Um, and there are thousands of these projects. To, to talk about the market is slightly mis, not misleading, but it's, it's, it's just you're just going down the wrong avenue because you need to look at every single one of the projects. So, for example, just on the United Nations database, there are over 8,000 projects and they're all different. They all need proper due diligence. They all need their own valuation. The liquidity is terrible, even worse on the way out. So, so there's, it's got lots of problems. I'm not saying we don't need these things. I think we do. Um, but there are lots of issues and lots of other issues I conceptually I have with them, which we can come back to if you want. But what I have followed since 2004, before inception in 2005, uh, is the European carbon market. So <clears throat> if we contrast the two, the, Euro the, the European carbon market or the emission trading scheme, as it's known, the ETS, EU ETS, uh, that is uh, designed uh, as the prime weapon the EU has to achieve its 2030 climate goal. In other words, to reduce emissions by 55% based on 1990 levels. Previously, it was a 40% reduction. They've upped the ante to 55%. So this is the prime weapon they have to do that. Uh, and, and essentially what it does is to set a cap in the carbon allowances each year, which reduces all the way to 2030. And that means that the supply of these allowances comes down each year, which puts a makes the market a bit tighter each year to force people to reduce their emissions. And that's a big difference, right? The EU ETS is about forcing reduction in existing emissions from industries, whereas the voluntary market says, if you feel like offsetting whatever emissions you choose to make, you can do so or not, depending on how you feel, right? It's a very different thing. So, you know, that's just saying you can emit a billion more tons of carbon and you can offset it if you like. Whereas yeah. this is saying, forget all that, you're going to reduce your emissions, right? That's the first point. Secondly, the EU ETS is regulated, whereas the voluntary is completely unregulated. Now you may not may or may not like regulation. You know, I've been a, a utilities analyst for my sins for the last 35 years, 
working for UBS and Berenberg and places like that. Um, and I have seen my share of regulation. And most of the time I see regulation, I don't like it, right? It doesn't work for shareholders because the interests are not aligned. The difference with the EU ETS is actually is one of the best regulatory regimes I've seen because what it's trying to do is raise the price of carbon to the point where it is a financial incentive to reduce your emissions. So as an investor, you like that. So you're aligned. So actually the regulation is good. You know, they've set the rules and then they let the market operate. That's a very different dynamic to saying, mm, they're like the profits you're making are going to reduce your profits. Very different. So, so it is regulated. Um, it is highly liquid. I mean, ridiculously liquid. Uh, you're trading, you know, 20 million allowances a day, typically uh, one and a half billion to two billion, you know, dollars or euros a day. Uh, not much difference these days. Um, whereas the, the voluntary market, you can talk about the market as a whole, uh, but as I said, it's down to each project, right? So at the project level, which is how, where you can invest, it is just so liquid. Uh, and on top of that, because it's unregulated, you've got a huge uh, magnet for some suspect traders to come in and take advantage of it, should we call it, to put it politely. Mm -hmm. uh, but the thing is, by the time these projects mature, and it takes 15 years for a, a tree to grow to maturity, assuming it survives pestilence and God knows what, um, they're probably long gone. So they've charged you a huge amount of money, but they've disappeared. Uh, was that the EUAs is, is you know, yeah, so the EUAs is the European allowances under the EU ETS. Got a bit of nomenclature to get over here. Um, but these allowances are highly liquid and very visible and, you know, don't charge. I mean, there's, there's tiny commissions to trade the things. So that's the main thing is that, you know, the EU ETS is about reducing emissions. Uh, and the voluntary market is about offsetting. And one final point. Uh, is that uh, I'm, I think it's probably unique that in a commodity, you can actually have a good grip on the demand side mm -hmm. and a good grip on the supply side. So in my model, I feel extremely comfortable with the demand and the supply dynamics, which gives me uh, a lot of confidence on where uh, I can forecast the price going to. Whereas in the voluntary market, it's it's a mess. I mean, yes, sure, there's more, uh, potentially more demand. There's a huge amount of supply which can come in. Uh, so predicting where the price is going to go is, is much more difficult, as well as all the problems about quality and everything else. All the problems about quality, exactly. And that would be, I think, the main point of contention within the voluntary market is how mysterious the supply and demand economics are and very tough to have any confidence in. Um, now, intuitively, uh, reducing carbon emissions versus offsetting emissions just makes more sense, right? Because offsetting, again, allows for all kinds of sort of arbitrary business models that are validated through, you know, firms that you could question their ethics and their legitimacy. It's a very mysterious industry. And so I totally get the skepticism. So talk to me about... Uh, the, the intention behind this industry within the European Union is to hit the climate goal of reducing emissions by 55% by 2030. Is it going to work? Like, is this, let's just start there. Is this actually a viable path to success 
when you look at those metrics, 2030, we want emissions reduced by 55%. Is this the vehicle? I mean, you said this is the weapon that they have access to, right, to accomplish this goal. Does that lead you to believe this is the this is this is the ticket, and this is how we're going to do it? Do you have confidence in that plan? Uh, I do. Um, it's not the only plan, but it is their cornerstone policy. Quote. Mm. Okay. On their website. Um, but obviously, on the back of that, or side uh, alongside that, they have you know renew more renewables and all that sort of para paraphernalia. Um, but the EUTS will work because as the supply comes down. If demand doesn't change, and it's not going to change sufficiently rapidly, by the way, um, we'll come back to that because that's slightly confusing. Uh, but uh, as supply comes down, then that forces the price up and the price will get to such a level where it is economically viable to invest to reduce your emissions. And that's the whole point of it. Right now, the way this works is that every April the 30th, you have to go cap in hand to your government for every emitting unit and say, right, here are my audited calendar year emissions. We'll call them 10 million tons, um, to which you have to deliver 10 million allowances to offset and clear the slate and then move on to the next year. Sorry, 10 million allowances? Just just break that concept down for me for a minute. Yeah, so you so you've got... Yeah, you've emitted 10 million tons of carbon dioxide and you need to deliver 10 million allowances. Those allowances, you either get some given for free and others you have to buy in the market. Right. So if you think of a bucket each year, that's the number of allowances the EU gives out and auctions almost on a daily basis. Mm -hmm. right? um, so just to you know, just go back to so, Industry get about 85% free allowances, so they have to buy 15%. Power, electricity, get zero free allowances, so they have to buy 100%. Power is about half the emissions in Europe uh, and industry, the rest. So yeah, so that bucket each year shrinks, right? Because that's the whole point of the of the declining uh, allowances to 2030. So the size of the bucket... The, the, the bucket of free allowances shrinks, that 85%? The bucket of total allowances, free and auctioned. Yeah. Okay. All right. Yeah. Let's just talk. Let's just say allowances. Forget whether they're free or auctioned. I mean, there's a mix there, right? Sure. So that bucket shrinks each year. So if the demand or the, the emissions don't fall, then that means that there are gets to the point where there aren't enough allowances to go around to go on the 30th of April and say, "Forgive me, Father, I've sinned. Here are my 10 million allowances to match my 10 million uh, emissions." And then you have a problem because you, you essentially have two options when you come to the 30th of April. You can either deliver your allowances, your 10 million, and call it quits, or you can pay a fine, which is going to be 121 euros this year, and this year and being April next year, uh, against today's price of 90 or so, so it's higher than current price. So you would pay a fine of 121 and you would still have to deliver the allowances you didn't deliver this last year. So in the following year. So for example, let's say that you managed to get 6 million allowances, but you're 4 million short. So on those 4 million, you're gonna pay 121 euros for each permit you didn't deliver allowance. Uh, and then on top of that next year, you've got to deliver the 4 million plus 
let's say you have the same emissions next year, the 10 million of that year. So you've got to deliver 14 million the following year. Mm-hmm. So you've got a penalty plus that. And that's that's really, we can go through it if you like, in terms of what that means for price. But um, in my book, that pushes a price to infinity. How are allowances created? Uh, well, the allowances are, it, it, it's, this is a weird market uh, because it's just one supplier, the EU, right? Uh, so they tell you they have this 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 line going from, you know, 2005 when they started down to 2030, and then they'll extend the scheme later on, um, and that reduces the supply by about four percent per annum. Okay. So that bucket gets slower each year, and that's the allowances they create. I just yeah electronically, uh, you know, as I said, industry get a proportion of free allowances. And the rest are auctioned off uh, almost on a daily basis. So, so the people who buy those at the auction will be, you know, the companies who are short uh, allowances for their annual emissions. Where, when a company purchases allowances on this April thirtieth date, they have to go to the government and say, "We emitted ten million tons." Okay, you need to purchase 10 million <clears throat> allowances, maybe 85% of which are subsidized, it sounds like, come for free, the other 15% they have to purchase. Where do those dollars go, right? So the company has now purchased the allowances to make up for their emissions. Where does that money end up? Where does that money go? Well, this is uh, part of uh, why I like the regulation and why interests become aligned, uh, because there are actually two maybe purpose is the wrong word for it, but there are two reasons or raison d'etre of this whole scheme. You know, the first one we said is, is the cornerstone policy to achieve the climate goal. Uh, but the second is it's a fantastic revenue earner, right? So the EU will auction off uh, you know, these allowances during the year, uh, collect the revenues and immediately distribute them to the member states. So for example, Poland gets 16.7% of that share. Right, Poland. I use Poland because I always make a lot of noise about anti-EU, but they're getting a huge amount of money. And we're talking just to give you context. You know, we're talking roughly six hundred million uh, auction throughout the year, number of allowances times eighty. So we're talking about almost fifty billion euros uh, of revenues. Uh, a bit more now because it's yeah, whatever. Let's call it fifty billion. To give you context on that number. The UK Brexit bill, right? So the, the the penalty we had to pay for leaving the EU after all these years was 40 billion. So this is bigger than the Brexit bill and it's an annuity. It recurs every year. And if I'm right, there's going to more than triple. Uh, so it's a huge amount of money which is going to all these member states. Um, and the only requirement they have is to spend at least 50% on climate related projects, whatever that may be. So it's it's a pretty loose definition, but it's a great source of revenues, particularly more so in, the, in these austere times. If I understood that correctly, tell me if I did not. Um, corporation acknowledges their audited emissions. They go to the government to purchase the allowances, the money they spend on those, which would be, did you say 80 euros? Or what was the price you... You yeah, so use that 80, 80, 90 euros at the moment. Yeah. 80, 90 euros per allowance. Okay. Um, 
that cash is then redistributed to the EU member states that they therefore have an obligation to spend at least 50% on climate related goals. Is that correct? Who determines how this cash is distributed among the EU member states? Say Germany is the emitter. Do they not receive that as an EU member state? Like how, how is that cash distributed and, and why oh, okay. is it weighted accordingly? That's already preordained in times gone by in terms of, I mean, I, I think they looked at, uh, you know, the I think it's based on the on the emissions per capita per country. Uh, okay. and, you know, Poland got 17.6%. So it's, it's kind of a wealth redistribution exercise to a degree, because I imagine the biggest emitters are going to be, I mean, they would be the biggest economies. So they're, they're buying allowances every year. And then that cash is redistributed to smaller nations, maybe poorer nations that don't have the emissions because they don't have the economy, uh, the manufacturing and the production. Is that, is that a like, fair way to look at it? Um, I don't know about that. I mean, Germany gets a big slice, as does France, as to, you know, whatever. It's just that Poland, yeah, I mean, there's a bit of redistribution because it, it tends to be the poorer countries which have higher emissions because they use coal. Okay, uh, yeah. So there's a bit of redistribution, maybe, but but everybody's making a lot of money out of it. Okay, okay. Um, now, so how do you how do you like? I don't think I don't think there's one single finance minister in the EU who does not love carbon. <laughs> Why is that? Well, because it's it's if you're running the country and you're getting this massive source of revenues, great. I mean, love carbon the carbon scheme rather than I don't mean carbon emissions as such. Yeah. Okay. So, so being that it's a regulated market and the price is therefore set by the EU, would it not be? Uh, and then influenced by the supply. Okay. Sorry. Elaborate on that for me. Cause I'm curious what the investor does in this situation, how you play it. And you know, every, every investor that watches my channel always asks the question, okay, I like the story. What's going to make the price go up. Right. And so I want to get into that part of the narrative. Yeah. Well, Every single meeting I've had with the EU since 2004, I say just about every single meeting, they've always said, we want the market to set the price. So the EU have set the rules, right? They've set this line of supply. Uh, they've said which industries have to, uh, or even down to the unit level, which units have to comply uh, and buy these allowances for delivery on April 30th. Um, uh, and then they let the market trade, right? So the question then, and it's a weird market because you've got a single supplier with a almost fixed supply, so it's a cap and trade uh, system. Um, so you cap the system and then you let it trade. And therefore, if in that situation, the market is over oversupplied, then the price would tend to zero. And if it was undersupplied, it tend to very high which I think lies in the world of infinity. Um, so <clears throat> uh, let me, if you let me share the screen, I'll show you a chart. This shows you uh, my, my forecast of how uh, much of a deficit uh, there is each year. Uh, and the important point is that you need to think of it as a cumulative deficit, and I'll explain why in a minute i kind of already have but i'll go over it again uh so you know this year for well last year but well, 2022 i say this year because it's obviously an april 2023 compliance as a 34 percent 
deficit of supply versus emission levels. Uh, the following year, 26%, the following year, 19%, and so on. And then it kind of peters out from about 25, 26 onwards. Um, But it is important to think about it cumulatively because uh, if you go back to what I said before, if you fail to buy uh, 34% of what you need, so let's go back to the same example. You've emitted 10 million, uh, but you've only managed to buy... 6.6 million of what you need uh, because there's a 34% shortage, then what's going to happen is that next year you're going to have to uh, purchase not only the emissions for that year, but also the 3.4 million you didn't buy this year. So you've got to get delivered the 13.4 next year. So you're exacerbating the supply conditions of the following year. And the, the problem next year is that not only do you have that problem of trying to get the 34% for delivery that year? But there's also a shortage in that year of 26%. So combined, you're looking at a 60% uh, cumulative deficit for those two years. You with me? Yeah. So yeah. Yeah. that's why I look at cumulative. So it's kind of getting to kind of interesting territory because it's 10 year by 2024, you're moving into more than 100% deficit, i.e. there are not enough allowances to go around at all, right? So so that's, and again, this is all built on the demand supply and, and demand you have a pretty good grip on and supply is mechanical. So, you know, again, you have a, a reasonably good, or at least I do, a reasonably good uh, idea on what's going on. But the reason why this, one of your, your questions, I'm sure will be, well, hang on, why doesn't everybody know this? And the answer is that, this is still a, a nascent market. There are st- still very few analysts, uh, uh, a handful, uh, and you know, they're also not, they tend not to be market-facing analysts, right? So forecasting the price is not perhaps the, what they're used to doing of, of 40, right? So, yeah. Um, so therefore, the question is, where does the price go to, given that you have a, a structural supply deficit? Uh, and the answer is that it can go, it'll go very high. <laughs> uh, but to be specific, you know, it needs to go to a point uh, which makes an industry or a company realize that it's actually now worthwhile to spend money, or they have to spend money, uh, because it just... It would, be, it would be a great payback if they reduce their emissions because the alternative is the penalty price uh, and the infinity argument, right? Now, could the what could disrupt this market? Maybe, let's say, um, the energy crisis in Europe continues to exacerbate. Um, countries like Germany are forced to utilize more coal. Uh, their emissions raise at a sort of unprecedented rate relative to recent years. And suddenly the 2030 goal is just like, this is not something that we need to, that we are gonna be able to achieve right now. And uh, you know, what what could disrupt this market, I suppose, Lawson is my question here. Like what, you know, what narrative that, you know, there's a hot war going on not too far away. There's an energy crisis occurring. You know, what, what could disrupt this narrative? Well, look, I mean, I, I turned by, uh, in January 2018, with this, when this was down at eight, 
Yeah. Um, so it's been a 11 bagger or so, so far. Um, and, and I always said that the only thing I can think of is a political reaction. Okay. You kind of have had that this year or an attempt to have it. Um, but for me, it's fascinating. There's, there's always a lot of noise and, and, and you've got to work out where the noise is coming from. Is it coming from Parliament, which are industry lobbied, uh, which and a lot of noise has come from there, which is like the worst possible scenario. Um, but at, at, at the end of the day, we have gone through and are going through one of the worst socioeconomic phases in recent history. As you say, you know, fuel costs going through the roof, uh, fuel poverty, uh, general poverty, recession, uh, lack of gas in Europe. Uh, so all, all these things are happening at the same time. And if you went 12, back 12 months ago and I told you that's going to happen, <laughs> you'd be laughing and having tears coming down your eyes. <clears throat> but that's what's happened. And yet through it all, the EU has not only stuck to its guns, if you excuse the uh, the pun there, uh, but it has also even gone further because, uh, you know, previously we had a 40% uh, 2030 climate goal. <clears throat> it's now 55%. And by the way, the 55% needs splitting down into the industry within the EU ETS scheme and then other industries, because the EU ETS is taking the brunt of that and going for a 61% rather than the 55% uh, yeah. decline. So, so it's even tighter. So throughout all of this, the EU could have actually said, you know what, sort of, you know, if things are terrible, we'll do it in two years' time or three years' time or we'll roll over. Of course, that would mean they'll never get done. But they've actually stuck to it. Uh, and, and they've come through with all this legislation uh, which is, uh, you know, make it even more robust and tightening the market further. Uh, so, so they've had their political moment. They've had a couple of issues where they said, oh, we want to have 20 billion euros raised from the EU ETS to help the repower EU project of, of more renewables and so on, which is about worth about 710 billion, uh, 210 billion. So they said, right, we'll have 20 billion from the EU ETS and we'll, we'll print more allowances. That was the first sort of kind of thing they said, which the market went, whoa, no, 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 and tanked 35%. And then they realized that actually, no, they can't do that and shouldn't do that. Uh, so they're now saying, right, we're just going to front load some auctions, which would have happened at the end of the year, or end of the decade, we'll bring those forward. Fine. That's, I can, that I can handle. Um, and that's not going to destroy the market. Uh, so it's political reaction. And the reality is that we're, we're not... We're not there. I mean, we survived the greatest political uh, intensity. Now, if, if we wake up tomorrow and the price is already 150, which is my year end, my 12 month target, or or goes to 200 already, which is my you know, back of the, the decade target, then bang, you know, we'll have a reaction. But if it goes up there more gradually, uh, then I think people would just keep on getting used to the higher price. But it's you you can't. It's very difficult to justify not allowing this price to go up to the point where it impacts, has the desired impact of reducing emissions, right? I mean, it's all very well, well, we've got a recession. Yeah, but if you don't have a planet, you won't care about the recession, so. Right. Yeah, okay. Now, how do investors get exposure to this, Lawson? 
Well, the the traditional way uh, is your your sort of uh, <clears throat> exchange, you know, your ETFs, right? The problem with the ETFs uh, is that uh, they are futures. They're driven off futures, not physical. Yeah, so not the physical allowances, but a, a, a play on those. Uh, and I, I have a, a an issue with that because I think, you know, if you if you really want to have an impact, whether you want to invest just because you want to have, you know, for speculative reasons, or you actually want to invest because uh, you want to have a green impact, the ETFs are not the best way to do that. You actually want the physical EUA. Right. But to get the physical European allowance is bloody difficult for most people on the street. So I'll, I'll, I'm gonna, I wasn't going to do this, but since you've asked me down that route, I'm going to give a slight plug here. <laughs> so yeah. I, one of the things I did was co-found uh, a company called Kakubi. Kakubi is a K-A-K-U-B-I. Uh, and Kakubi, um, we, we went live about three, four weeks ago. Uh, and you can buy a token so you've got to be on blockchain for it at this point in time uh you, you can buy a token uh, which effectively is one for one backed by an eua so you're going to get the physical uh effectively the physical eua backing whatever token however many tokens you have so that means you have a direct impact on reducing emissions and on tightening that market and putting the price up so it is yeah, a pretty good way to do it if you can uh, buy on blockchain. Otherwise, I guess you're into ETF land and just doing futures. What's the uh, origin? I just searched for the company, and before your company came up, there's the Kakubi Kingdom. But is there a uh, historical tie to the name of your company? No, it's Kakubi.com. Uh, yeah, we we're trying to come up with something. Uh, What's the name Kakubi? What does that mean? Uh, to be absolutely honest, it came into me in the middle of the night where I ah. used to live in Tokyo, and uh, yeah. my mother and I were invited to the Emperor's Palace to watch Kabuki, which is right. Japanese. apologies to any Japanese, particularly Japanese who love Kabuki, but I found it the most painful thing I think I've ever seen. Uh, and then I just rearranged the letters in the middle of the night somehow and thought, Kakubi, okay, nobody, does anybody have that name? No, it doesn't write Kakubi. <laughs> so that's... I, I named my kids that way, I get it. All right. <laughs> All right. Okay. Yeah. I'm, I'm on the side here. So yeah, you have to connect your crypto wallet and then you can, can participate. Right. Yeah. Um, if you've got, if you've got a crypto wallet, then, then you're fine. You can do that. It's, it's not centralized, but it made it absolutely decentralized. Sure, uh, sure. We've done it extremely uh, law abiding. Uh, you know, we've spent a huge amount of lawyers fees. It's based in Switzerland, not in some dodgy uh, sort of a sort of a location. So we just leave it at that. Um, uh, it's not anonymous. Uh, we every every for every single token there will be an EUA. So effectively, your assets are are backed and and quasi segregated. Uh, it is cheap to transact. It's highly liquid because obviously you've got the EUAs behind it. Uh, so I think it's you know that's that's what we wanted to do. Is I, I just got frustrated that as an analyst that all I could do was opine on carbon. And nobody could really buy it unless they were particularly into spread betting and had spreadsheets and got an honest. This is ridiculous. This needs to be available to everybody. Uh, yeah. And that's what we've done, really. So we put that on the map. Okay, look, Lawson, I appreciate you walking me through this and uh, introducing Kakubi. Um, 
we can, I'll send people there, kakubi.com, good place um, to learn more. Uh, in, in addition, Lawson Steel 3, at Lawson Steel 3 on Twitter. We'll have that in the bio. Anything else you want to leave the audience with before we wrap this up? No, if you prefer LinkedIn, I'm on there. But yeah, I tend to respond to people. So if you have questions or, or thoughts, they're always happy to entertain. All right. Look, I appreciate your time. And this has been interesting. So thank you very much. My pleasure. Thanks for having me. If you enjoy my content, do me a favor. Follow or subscribe to this podcast. Drop me a rating and a review and share this with a friend. All of these things allow me to get bigger and better guests on the show. Now you can catch me all over social media at jmartinbc. Thanks for tuning in.